Hello and welcome to Gatsby Fridays, a show about getting the best out of a creative life from two creative directors working around the world and based in New York City. Sarah and I started Gatsby Fridays, the podcast, during a time of great transition in society. The world as we knew it changed in a combination of the global pandemic and the worldwide social unrest due to the deaths of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and countless others led us all to finally have conversations that were necessary. We knew we had a voice in this discussion from our own unique perspectives as visual creatives inhabiting a world of change. Over the last year, we've talked about staying creative in the time of quarantine, race, the pop cultural legacies of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and the humble black and white composition notebook to the merits of why Point Break 1991's is the greatest action movie ever made. I personally think it's the best movie ever made. Uh, Sarah may disagree. This week, we wanted to share what this journey has been like. We cut together highlights from episodes we think you'd enjoy, and at the end of this episode, we bring back a signature cocktail to toast cheers to you. Join us for a year of conversation and change. This is Gatsby Fridays. On episode eight of season one, Keep on Learning, we talk about our varied higher education experiences and how they've shaped our creative learning. Alex, you and I both have unique and non-traditional design education experiences that have defined our careers. Let's start with yours. When did you start your creative education what were your first art, art and design learning experiences were like? When I was in, I think it starts early on, actually, in high school. Yeah. Um, I went to public school in New York City. I think we kind of touched upon this briefly uh, in early episodes. But the education that I got in terms of art was not the greatest. Not in New York City and not in the public school system. So my mother and my aunt uh, enrolled me into classes at SVA for pre-college courses for high school students, as well as uh, FIT, uh, Fashion Institute of Technology. And at SVA, School of Visual Arts, I learned uh, figure drawing and just general drawing techniques, which, which completely helped totally helped in learning uh, in learning how to use my hand how to gain a technique how to use so different materials did you need to apply to get into those classes or are you just enrolled those I, I enrolled okay those I enrolled there was obviously there's a there's a portfolio process uh, when you get into college um, that I had to go through as well yeah um, do you have so to understand the public education system better because I didn't go to high school here I don't okay. I don't know that well. Did you have no art school, art art classes at all? Uh, because, of, I mean, I understand the budgetary restrictions, but I don't know what, to what extent you, did you have like a once a week, like, you know, this art study hall where you just like got basic assignments and you were too talented for it, it wasn't engaging enough, or they had nothing? So in the school, in the New York City school system, I could only speak for the time that I went to school. Of course. Not, not what's going on now. There were art courses, but these were very basic art courses where you learn shading and different shapes but nothing in depth especially nothing in depth in learning about artists oh yeah i didn't have that either. and that is what i learned at sba i mean we were getting trained from art professors who were themselves artists painters sculptors and had that background and they imparted all they imparted that wisdom to us where we were learning how old were you in my teens, high school, so mm-hmm. anywhere between 13 to 16, 17. And that's where, you know, I started learning about artists 
has varied from Picasso to Keith Haring. Yeah. And when I started learning about artists that were from New York that did graffiti, that's when my eyes started lighting up and I started just drawing everything I could possibly think of and enjoying it in the style, actually, of Keith Haring and, and Jean-Michel Basquiat. That's fun. Yeah. What about you? It's, that's the difference between like growing and growing up in New York. It's such a different experience. Um, well, I went to high school in Turkey. And before that, I grew into, I mean, I was born into a creative family. My grandmother on my dad's side was always, always working with crafts. Not necessarily highbrow art or uh, creative in the sense that, you know, like he was, she was not like a visionary artist but she did not sit still she made a lot of different things there was like glass mosaics there was the the oh she got into these like black ceramic uh ceramic vases that are painted black and then there would be like fabric floral prints where she would put clay behind them to make them three-dimensional and stuck them on the vases she loved that stuff so it's like all a mask that. relief it's I'm not sure what it would be called in English just like you know so it would make like uh, yeah it would be like a relief almost like three dimensional feel for the flower on the print that came from the fabric this fabric is stretchy like stuff like that but like you know they looked craftsy they didn't look polished like even then I was like she also had these like all over her apartment and I was like "Eh." (laughs) but when I was a kid like I got to sit there like she would you know teach classes at the Japanese Women's Association, like, and do crafts with them. So, like, I I don't have that many fond memories about that relationship, but I remember the, the crafts. And uh, my grandfather on my mother's side um, was a painter and a calligraphist. I was just exposed to it around him, but, like, we didn't sit down and paint together, right? Like, so that's the difference between, like, being craftsy and, and painterly in a sense, but this like production of creative things, like making things, has been around me when I was little. Okay. Um, but he was like you know. Like a realist. Yeah, more realist. Okay. Um, when he was like, I mean, after he passed away from the from the stuff that he left behind, like we found just like pencil drawings of Ingrid Bergman, like Ooh. perfectly done. It's hanging in my apartment now. Wow. It's like with he he just had a green pencil in hand, so. She, he just drew it with a green pencil. Like, he just made, like, he just painted and draw, drew. Like, he did a lot of stuff like that. But it was more of a personal activity for him. Even though I was exposed to it. So that was around me. And in terms of, like, um, high school education, I went to a private high school. Well, there was an art class okay. <laughs> once a week. But I, I, I always felt like it wasn't enough, I guess. What? Um, how so? I don't know how to, like, I don't know how to describe it. I mean... It was enough for every student to get some sort of exposure to see if they're interested enough. But it wasn't enough for the interested ones to go deeper and flourish in it. Mm, yeah. Okay. I think that's where it's like it was it was designed to to teach a class of students, right? Like so I'm me being more interested into it. So like I would do certain things, like I try but like it wasn't it's like I felt like it wasn't enough and there was no art history education whatsoever. So like, you know, your your exposure, yeah, I learned about Picasso, but I also like I only learned about Picasso. I didn't learn about anything else. Like it was we only got like some a few handful of traditional names thrown around. Um, so I, when we were doing term papers, like I always chose like art history. The, the thing that I was going to do in college was like take art history classes as if because I was so starved for it. Yes. Um, and getting into college, I didn't get to art, go to art school 
because you needed a private instructor to put together the required portfolios. And at that age, I didn't have the skill set of like create a portfolio on my own without that instruction. Mm. And um, is that is that typical? What do you mean? To have to have a uh, like a like well, an we art don't portfolio have SBA advisor in Istanbul, to... so like. <laughs> Yeah, you but you have to... design schools in Istanbul. You have art schools there. No, there's like one art school. Well, there's a few art schools, but they're very like college level and they're intellectuals and like they're not like there. There is not this idea like SVA, at least when I was at that age. Maybe it's now. Maybe it's available now. I don't want to speak um, as if I know. But um, there wasn't this like course that you could go to to prepare you. Also, the type of like portfolio, you know, like they would need to be training you for. I wanted to study in the U.S., so, like, the portfolio I would need to put together would need to satisfy the U.S. institutions. They didn't have expertise in that, so you needed a private instructor for that. Wow. Or, um, we couldn't afford it, so I didn't apply to art schools because they didn't have the portfolio. I had classmates who did, like, you know, like, four-week summer intensives at RISD, kind of like the classes that you were taking in the city, to put together portfolios so they could apply to architecture school, they could apply to creative programs in, like, you know, more liberal arts colleges or art schools. We couldn't afford that either. But did you know? you know early on, like in your high school, early high school, that this was a career path that you wanted to get on? I didn't even know the difference between advertising and branding. I didn't learn that until I did my first internship. Yes. So all I knew was if I wanted to have a creative career, it had to be in advertising. To do an advertising, I had to study creative things. I didn't even know have access to art history. I didn't want to be a painter ever. Like, that was, I didn't think that I was going to be, like, this artist where I'm going to paint things. But just, like, exploring all of that, I, I knew that I needed liberal arts that could, education, that would give me enough base an to pivot base. around. Yes. Which is where I ended up. When we get back, we'll talk about art school for undergrads. This is Gatsby Fridays. In season one, Love Letter to New York City, we hit up downtown New York City and wax poetic on how Gatsby Fridays all got started. So, technically, the root, like the very start of Gatsby Fridays, is before my time when yeah. you were working at G&G. You and the designers would go to Savoy for Champagne Fridays. They were called Champagne Fridays at the time, and yes, yeah, Savoy is no longer there. That was a cool place, but then we moved it over to Marion's. And I don't know if you know why. Actually, do you know the story of why we moved it to Marion's? No. Okay, so... That I don't even know. The next spot we're going to be hitting is uh, the Bowery Hotel. Sorry. The Bowery Hotel. And so we decided, let's go to the Bowery Hotel since it was actually closer to the office. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then when we went in, we decided, okay, so let's have champagne. And one glass of champagne was $25 for one even glass. back then? Back then. Jesus. But... At Marion's, a whole bottle was $25. <laughs> okay. So then... So Marion's is on the west side between 4th and Great Jones on Bowery. On Bowery, yeah. It used to... And it changed so many names since then. So oh, Marion's... Marian's. I remember going to Marion's with you. Last time I was there was when I was in grad school in L.A. I came back the first Christmas and you, me, and another girlfriend of mine... We had bottles of champagne downstairs in the oh, basement Oh, my there. goodness. Yeah, they had the downstairs area with the low ceiling. Mm-hmm. That was a cool spot. It was. That was so a really cool spot. After that, it became Ashon Dumbo. Yes. For a while, that was cool, too. And then I don't even know when that went away. 
and we were just walking over from just today from our last spot when we were in the stoop of the of the museum we were just swinging over to take a look and guess what the doors were open there were two very nice gentlemen inside and we had a little chat and it's coming back as sunny brown sunny brown um, an italian an italian eatery and bar and, and we're, we're we're excited for that as well and you know what like that's what i love the, that about downtown new york all of a sudden we just made friends with these two guys because we were asking about the place and we just stopped by door was open quick conversation and I'm so excited. This is one of the most amazing things about New York that I was just saying before that I've been to that spot under every Many establishment times. and I'm still going to come back when it's sunny brown and whatever it becomes after that, I'm still going to be here because that's what it is about New York is that the city evolves and changes and it always and reinvents, it, reinvents, reinvents, reinvents itself. itself. Yes. That's, I, that's one of the most exciting things about New York. It never gets old. Never gets old. You lose some spot, you reminisce still to this day. Polino's, it wasn't the best pizza, but it was the best environment to hang out, grab a pizza, amazing cocktails because it was a Baltazar's bar, bar culture. Like they're, they're, their bartenders were from Baltazar, so like it's, it was the same company. Mary's Best. had good food too. I think it was Southern. I don't remember the food there. It was good. The food was well, good I, there. Yeah. So like, I don't have this like heartbroken feeling about Marion's not being there anymore. I don't, I don't feel heartbroken about Heshon Dumbo either. I no. do feel heartbroken about Polino's on Houston and Bowery back in the day. I think that's why this episode is about a love letter to New York and like just walking around and reminiscing about what it was and what it's going to be next time. We picked up, we picked actually a very good day to be walking around. Oh my God, it's so <laughs> nice and breezy too. For the episode Passion Projects of Season 2, Episode 5, we discuss why are these projects so important to us. Alex, so let's get into our conversation. Mm -hmm. Why as creatives with all that we do on top of everything, we do these passion projects. Why are they important? First, you're right. Why give ourselves the headache of doing more stuff than we need to be possibly doing? Like, it really makes no sense. To just keep making more. To just keep on making more projects for yourself. Like, it's, uh, you know, this pile, this pile, this pile, this pile. You know, there's... I mean, I showed you the meme that's going to go up on our Instagram. You should put that it up. That is a definition of what we do. Oh, so I, I can only speak for myself, obviously. There's always more story to tell in anything that we do. And I think you want to give yourself a project because, you know, you start going down those rabbit holes of thinking to yourself, oh, my God, this is an interesting subject matter. This is an interesting concept. I want to explore this a little bit more. But really the question is, why are they passion projects and why are they important? And I don't know. I, I guess I'm trying to suss out what is... I guess we should explain what we consider passion projects. Yeah, passion project isn't something isn't putting up a shelf on your wall. That's a that's a weekend project. Yes. That's something that needs to get done. Passion project is because you you can't stop doing it. I think that's what it is. It's just like innate need that it comes out of you, and it it doesn't have to be an art project per se. I, my my passion is my passion project is is cooking. I think. Yes. Because it's still, like, it's the most therapeutic thing I can do. And I need to eat so I can justify my the time I spend on it. Because there's more projects to be done at all times. Like, that's the dumb, like, that's the chicken or the egg part, part of the conversation, I guess. But the passion projects is, like, you, it makes you feel connected. 
and I don't know, I don't want to use the word worthy, but it, it makes you feel like you have something to say and you're saying it. And Well, there's a bigger story to tell. I feel like, you know, with your cooking, of course, it's life-sustaining. Yeah, that's but just you really, you really do explore the culture of it. And you yeah. go down that rabbit hole of trying to figure out what these ingredients mean in the context of the culture. Because I, I, see, I see a lot of your, of your cooking work. And that is a passion, but I wonder... Well, that's the irony of it, that this, this we've been talking about this for a long time now. And this podcast is our somewhat of a passion project that we've been nurturing for so long and finally doing. On top of everything else... I started yet another Instagram account for my yes. cooking because I finally caved in. Like that, I have my only outlet of sharing the food that I do because I live alone and I eat it all by myself. Is my cooking baby group chat? The the name of the group is Cooking Baby. <laughs> with two other friends of mine, we're all like obsessed with cooking, so we send each other. But even then, there's like there's only so much detail that I get to tell about my experience with the food and the experimentation that I've done or things that I've learned that are like I don't know. Maybe nobody cares about it, but it, the putting it out onto Instagram, I'm, I finally caved in. I have, like, years and years of, like, food photos to put up there, but it's more about what you write in the captions, I think, for me, for this particular project. I only have one post so far, <laughs> but at um, sams.eats. Um, but I think the part of it was it was no longer enough for me to just cook and take pictures of it to keep on my phone. I needed to put it out into the world. Yes. And, you know, yes, of course I want to get the likes and the follows, but I just needed it out in the world. And I think Instagram is almost like a small journal of that, without having to worry about building your own website and writing about it and, like, page layouts and clicks and all this stuff. Like, it's just, like, one photo up, three words, done. And that's the difference between, because we've spoken about collections and hobbies, and sometimes these collections or hobbies don't need to be exposed to the public so i think a passion project is something that you really want to put out into the world and have it acknowledged by a larger larger society or a larger group of people i mean, I mean making connections with other people making connections right? yes um, um i was telling you about earlier today that I'm, I'm reading this book but by glennon doyle and there's 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 a lot of things that i i was so surprised to read and it's i it caught me by surprise but the part that i read this morning was that people take on activism and projects through things that they feel that they their experience leads them to. Sometimes it's pain, sometimes it's joy, but whatever relates to you, you go out and share with other people and you find your people through that. It creates it creates a community, but it also creates impact. So I'm not saying my Instagram account is gonna create an impact, but it'll it'll create some sort of connection with somebody else. Like I think that's because it, it touches me, because I, I care deeply about the food and how it's cooked and where it comes from. I think sharing that with other people are appreciated, and I'm clearly not the first one in, in the world with a cooking Instagram account or the person that shares about these, or I don't presume to be a chef or anything. But just sharing that with people, I think, is what... It, it's something else. Should passion projects have an end point? Like, I wonder... So, you know, if you're a writer and you're thinking about doing a novel, there that's a could be a passion project and then there's an end goal to that. Or if you're a composer, you want to write your composition and there's an end goal to that. Should there be an end goal to these passion projects that we take on? 
It depends. I mean, all, my painting's also a passion project, but I like it's not passionate enough because I don't do it all the time and I don't really share it. Hmm. And I have no interest in posting it or selling it because I don't think, you know, like it's not as meaningful to me. I think it's just putting paint. I just like tactile things. And it, well, it there's your painting about. and then there's your hand lettering. Yeah, the hand lettering I, I put out into the world. That was that was a time that I was going through um, a hard time, and there were a lot of mantras that were passed on to me to repeat. And I, I, I was like scribbling them on the go, and I had these like little crumpled piece of paper. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm a designer. I, I, I want to surround myself with visually beautiful things, and so I started writing them prettier and prettier. So that became a project, and then I put it onto the world. Unfortunately, work got in the way. It's up. Yes. But it's not maintained currently. Do you think that the... That I will get back to. Okay. That is not dead for me. Okay. So the cycle is not over. No. For that. Um, But I think an ultimate goal, I think it's the dream goal, right? Like, if you... If anything you wanted out of this world for this project, what would it be, right? Like, you want the funding to make it a billion dollars or, I don't know, for me, it's Oprah. I want Oprah to say, look at these beautiful hand lettering, uh, like, affirmations, and here's the artist that's behind them, and here's the concept. Oprah says your name, you've done a good job. You know that that it's justified all the time, all your free time that you put into it, all the friend gatherings that you skipped or whatever. This is obviously pre-quarantine mentality, but... But it's a a gift and a curse, because if Oprah, just going down that, that avenue, if Oprah said she loved your hand lettering and this was something that a the acknowledgement is great it could boost your business in doing this but you do them by hand well yeah but that means then you'd be bombarded with orders wouldn't that be amazing i don't i don't know i wonder i think that would be it would overwhelm and then it would move from passion project to work so so from that perspective what would my cooking channel would end up in I think it would. I mean, again, I wouldn't be the first person to start an Instagram account thinking that it would lead to a cookbook. I don't know. Like, I don't. I feel like I always say that. It's kind of like, you know, what are we going to get out of this podcast? Oh, wouldn't it be amazing to have a TED Talk? Ooh, let's do it in Milan. No, let's do it in Miami and all this stuff. But, like, yeah, I would love to have a cookbook, but I, I don't. I'm not ready for it. And I don't know. If that's the ultimate goal, mm. if that's if that end happens, then what then? And then the cookbook I, itself would be its a, own a, yet again separate project. Yes. Then you, you would then have to start exactly. working so like, towards that. It's one. not a goal that I want, but like you know, the ultimate success of a project, logically, if you follow the train of like developments, and you know, like that's where it would lead to. I don't think that's what I want, and I have a feeling that this is what they were trying to teach at Art Center when when they were saying you know five years find yourself what, what do you think you're going to be doing in five years your your job doesn't exist yet and i was you know when you're 26 and you think you know it all and i was like i don't know whatever like i'm gonna need a job and i'm gonna need a visa so i really don't know what they're talking about whatever they want to call my job title i'll take it kind of thing but at the end of the day before i started school uh before i started grad school there was no iphone it came out halfway through and by the time i graduated there were jobs that didn't exist for iPhone interface design when I started school. So they already knew that this clearly, that's why they're teaching and I was there to learn. But um, So that, there's that concept of whatever this is gonna end up in, I don't think it's defined yet. Maybe it's, it's, maybe it's a new platform or 
an outlet we haven't even thought about yet because I'm really not trying to like put this into a book. I don't want this to be a recipe blog where it's like indexed perfectly with tags and stuff. That I, that's what I do for work. Yes. I don't want that for this. So the passion project doesn't necessarily have to yield these types of definitive results where you have... I don't want my living to be relying on it. And have those hard deadlines. That too, yes. Yeah. This is why I will never become a professional chef. Mm. I take too much joy in this to actually have deliverables that I have to live by. Yeah. It will ruin it, it for me. It turns it into a whole other thing. Yeah, we have enough deadlines in life. I don't need that. What does it take to belong? Sarah and I discuss our backgrounds in Season two's Immigration and Belonging episode. What brought me here was this promise of a better, a better education that I would get to explore before paving my own path, right? But you're first-generation American. Your mom immigrated here from Honduras. Her experience has been completely different. And do you think her decision to raise her children in the U.S. impacted your creative life? I think, I think my mom knew early on that I was a creative uh, drawing and, and doing... Yeah, but you were born here. You were already born. I was born. born here, but I feel like she obviously didn't come to this country knowing that I was going to be a creative because I was born here. Once I was here, she had to... Art wasn't a thing in my family that was recognized as being a viable... Uh, Way to make a living. A job pursuit or career endeavor. But she knew that I was somebody who wanted to draw. And it was also a thing to keep me safe, to keep me at home, to keep me off the streets, so to speak. And so she invested. She invested in a drawing table. She invested in art materials. I went to a public school in New York City, and art education wasn't the best, and it was lacking. So she made arrangements for me to take extracurricular art classes that really propelled me not only into understanding art, but also understanding other people because I was able to meet other kids in, Expanded your circle. In other, in other aspects and genres of life. Just like when you came here and you started understanding a broader swath of not only the American psyche and the American personality, but also just personalities in general, was the same thing that I had to do even living in New York City. Yeah. Well, of course, it's just growing up and understanding the world. That in a previous episode that you had to, because of the public school curriculum, you ended up taking these private classes, and that led to Pratt and Parsons and SBA. And you, I think, I guess the difference is, what I'm asking is, as a first-generation American, when you're exploring this creative life, did you feel like you belong? Did you feel like your path was in front of you if you ex- wanted to explore it? You belonged in a creative community. There was some place you were going for, or were you just like well, winging speaking, it? Speaking from the immigrant experience and and my mom being an immigrant, and also coming from a from an ideology that you came to this country to work hard and to earn a living, and art wasn't in the equation. You know, like art is not something that I grew up with that was a viable means of getting out of the circumstances of the situation that I was currently in. I have to give credit to my mom and my aunt for really seeing that here's a child who was precocious and really wanted to draw and we needed to find an avenue for him. And I think it's just not the way my mother and her, in her culture and the way she grew up. 
I think maybe it's the generation too. Like I, I grew also up, generational. I I grew up with the same expectations. There's always stories around that revolve around my parents, but I think my parents knew that I needed to find a creative way to make. Like I needed to find a way to make a living out of my creative talents and expectations. They they could see their kid had something. But they weren't trying to make... If I said I was going to be a painter, they would be, like, worried. They weren't, like, yes, she's a painter. It wasn't... And, again, like, that's the expectation, though. At that age, at that generation, at that era, if you wanted to be a creative, other than this, like, madman scenario, which is, like, very unique and rare, making a living out of a creative profession was really not understood as common as it is now. So... I think we both got lucky with people that let us an open avenue for us in our families that they so we needed to just go and figure it out. And we just needed the tools to be presented to us. Did you have other members in your family or other members in your community that were artists that you could look towards in your community Not growing in up terms in Turkey? Of career. No. Um, my grandmother uh, on my dad's side was was a wealthy wife so she she that that was her hobby she kept busy she was part of the Japanese Turkish Association women's association and she would go teach like crafts lessons there but like it was just to keep her like socially engaged it wasn't anything artistically wild it was more craft see what she did like you know the first time I did like glass piece mosaics was with her and then on and actually more influentially on my my mom's dad my grandfather on my mom's side I think he was an artist at heart. I think generationally, he never thought that art, being an artist was the path that he could have taken, which I think is, I still think about that very fondly. I always wonder, like, if he was born in this country, what what would he be? Because generationally, he was a kid when the Turkish Republic was founded. There was, like, this whole, like, drive, you know, like, at that era, and he became a military man, so he was a lot more structured and rigid in certain ways, but... He was a painter, he was a musician, he was an artist at heart, and he he got into um, uh, calligraphy, which is a very, very Muslim art form because the depictions of uh, of Muhammad is not is prohibited in Muslim culture, so anything that was, they made miniatures, miniature art forms, meaning um, people, were de- people were depicted like, as tiny, tiny things, so it was no longer a depiction of any particular person that were so tiny that you couldn't really make resemblance of it oh. or oh, calligraphy evolved because they couldn't make impressions of the face because they didn't want the same way the crisis idolized as as a face so they want so the letter form evolved so calligraphy became a huge art form and he became a calligraphist which is the one tattoo that i have on my wrist this is his is his artwork um so he was an inspirational artist, but again, that wasn't his primary way to make a living. That's what he did when he retired from his military and civil duties. Like, he would have never even considered, like, mm. become, like, artists, being an artist is never a full-time job, and that's a very rare. And you had to be exceptionally talented as a kid for any family or social expectance to support you through that. So culturally, in that era, it was not okay. It's different now. So we it, was are more important, open it was important for you to come here to study art and also... Find a path. Find a path and explore opportunities. Yeah. 
so being what brought me here was the opportunities and I and I recognize that it's a it's in the current political climate I came here from a privileged perspective I came here as a college student to a private university and I got to stay which I worked really hard not to take away from the work that I've done but and I, I came here as a scholarship student um, I couldn't afford it without scholarships but my my immigrant experience is about finding my place in the world and finding my place in the world i come to the united states because the educational system was more promising to let me figure out my path which i think is still true um but also i went to college in new orleans yes so from an art perspective it's a very eclectic art community but also very artist which is not who i am very it's not my personality to be that eclectic. There's, there's still very whimsy fine arts. Yes, fine very artists. whimsy fine arts. And I went to a fine arts program. That's what Tulane has, and but that gave me a wonderful groundwork to build from, and okay. I learned like I wouldn't take away that experience because sometimes you know life puts you in certain paths that that you it isn't exactly what you wanted but you benefit from an integrated perspective which i absolutely believe in that in this case um but i knew like i came to new york for thanksgiving uh my junior year and then i knew i had to be here wow. i had to be here I, I can't tell like i didn't even explore the city that much i was my friend's guest so i followed them around but i did my first internship which is where i met you and that, that company already changed my perspective about all I knew about a creative way to make a living without being a broke artist was in advertising. I didn't love advertising. I just thought that that was the only way to at least be in the creative vicinity while still making a living. And then I found a company that does brand positioning. Hallelujah. What is that? Like, we actually define the brand itself. To, so it becomes... So New York already, as soon as I got here, gave me so much more to explore. <laughs> what did you see in New York that really captured your imagination? Like, what streets did you walk down? Or what, and I don't want to know what built, like... Again, like, like it wasn't an what, experience that's memorable enough to say, like, this is what changed my mind. I didn't get yeah. to see museums or anything. I was, I was my friend's guest. I was just on the streets, just walking around the city. I can't even describe it because it was... God knows how many years ago. It was well, the streets will have that effect. It was, yes, it did. Ha I guess maybe that's the effect. Yes. I, I can't really put my finger on it. I was a guest, so there were already plans in the works. But for the first time since I left home, I felt like I was in a, I was in a live city. So Istanbul, as much as it's in, now considered, I don't know, that's the bridge between Europe and the Middle East, but it is a metropolitan city. Mm. And you raise your hand and cab stops. And then I go to New Orleans, which is suburban in a way. And it's homes and swamps and it's sticky weather and tropical storms. And you have to call a cab and wait 40 minutes for it to show up for you. Like, it was just like a very culturally like, this is America? <laughs> what is this? But I went to New Orleans. I had a lot of friends that went to Boston, which is kind of like a small town yes. that protects you from, like, that kind of gives you the sense of enough of a city. But but then you come to New York. New mm. York is something else. Yes. So coming here, I, I, I mean, I, I, like, I, I don't want to presume that I came to this country 
and say, okay, I came to the U.S., I belong here. I always knew that there was more to be promised to me here, that I could do more. Mm. If I, I feel like, I felt like I, I could kind of get the sense that if I stayed in Turkey, there would be a lot more limitations in where I could pivot to or I would carve a path. But then I, and then you come to New York, and that's, that's, I feel like New York is its own thing, creates an incredible amount of possibilities, but it also gives me that sense of belonging here, that I can be as foreign as I want to be, I can be as different as I am, but New York is a home to every person that wants to make it home. It is, I mean, there's, in the current political climate, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot more highlight on how different isn't accepted and how difficult it is. And I've, I read a lot of books about, you know, the, the latest one I read is The Conditional Citizen, where even when you get your green card and your citizenship, if you're not a born white American, it comes with conditions of how the qual- comes with conditions of the quality of your life. And I can see that. I understand all of that. But from a creative life... New York thrives on you being different. Contrast. And embraces it. So uh, there's there's a difference in my immigrant experience in that I don't pretend to under pretend to uh, assume to understand anybody else's immigration experience and the struggles and I don't want to focus on the bureaucracy of the paperwork but for me the acceptance is because it's New York. Mm. New York embraces your uniqueness. Did you see that that episode of Oprah's show on Apple when he when she had Obama, Obama yes. as the guest? I showed you a little yes. <laughs> clip that where was, they, that they was were the, with the green screen. That was really cool. Was but um, and I've I've heard him say that before too, where he says my entire he named his book for the promised land of like kind of like the similar emotional attachment to this country, where he says my story is only only possible in this country of a white mother from Kansas and a black father from Africa that can create me to become the president of the United States. And it is only possible in this country, yes. despite its challenges. And I love that that explanation of the possibilities of this country. So for me, the immigration story, I've written about it before, has challenges. And belonging is a very personal thing. There are challenges. There are moments that are very lonely. There are moments where I feel like, what am I doing? But in terms of the things that I've accomplished, I don't think I would. my story would be possible anywhere else. On episode one, season three, we talk of the importance of representation in our political and societal spheres on the episode, Image and Representation. Sarah, not only will we be exploring race, but we'll also be talking about families. Camilla Harris being the first person of color to become VP of the US. She's not only of black and Southeast Asian descent, she also brings the first blended family to the White House. Why do you think this is so important for us right now? Um, For me, as a single woman who's never married, doesn't have kids, seeing an alternative happy family at the the level that she is, we haven't seen examples of this. We We have a lot of examples of uh, successful women not having children and living alternative lifestyles, but not in this level on the world stage. And like, you know, we know Oprah doesn't have kids. She, she chose not to have kids and she speaks openly about that. But um, the fact that she, Kamala, has 
a family through her husband. They call her Momola. It changes the all of a sudden the expectations and the possibilities for someone like me that you can have a family at any stage in your life. And I find that hopeful in a way because I live in New York. We live differently here than the rest of the world. Time yes. moves at a different speed from a society's expectations point of view in New York. So, but compared to the rest of the world, I'm an unmarried single woman. I've gone to seed. So like, but seeing someone like her in that position is incredible because she brings a different kind of family. It also, I mean, Biden and uh, the Biden family is also a, a different, it's not his first family. It's a huge family that comes from both of them and their kids. Uh, so I, I find that exciting that, what is the expression? The the, the three people family is no longer- The nuclear the, family. The nuclear family. Uh, the nuclear family is no longer the thing to aspire to. There are other options. It isn't just one way. And I find that hopeful and exciting. And you're also raising mixed children. Yeah, so it's exciting to see children that are of mixed race and such a high profile, being so high profile in, in, in the public sphere because, you know, I, it, representation is important. That's why we're talking about this. But for, for me, and to make sure that my children see that there are people that look like them in the upper echelons of, of our political society, that they not only have a voice, but they also have visual representation, some markers to say, oh, you know what? There are people who look like me that can aspire. and. Once again, being a parent, you always want to inspire your children. It doesn't hurt that society also echoes that for you and makes my job a heck of a lot easier. It's a, it's a sign that the society is turning, it's, um, the, the wave is turning a little bit. So the opportunities that they will have when they grow up is also going to be Definitely. more than what Kamala Harris had to fight to get there. Yes. Her being there already is opening doors for your kids to have different struggles. We all have our own struggles for very different reasons to each his own. But from that perspective, she's already paved a little bit of the way so that your kids can pave a different way for the next generation. Like that levels of like opening up opportunities for others. I find that hopeful and exciting. No, you're right. And and you speak what you said I'm latching on to. It's totally generational. You know, she's paved the way for even even for someone like me to see her there. I'm it's just very exciting. And of course, my kids, when they see her, especially during the uh, the inaugura the inaugurational speeches and and we watch those all together as a family. My kids were there and they were happy. They saw so many different people in the audience. They saw Amanda Gorman, twenty-three-year-old prodigy. Just beautiful, you know, and and I think it's wonderful. I I feel hopeful. I get goosebumps every time I think about her speech, saying I may be the first, but I'm not the last. Like that, just still saying oh, that out loud so gives me good. goosebumps. So like, good. It's it's so energizing, especially after the four years that we had, just to be able to see that. Okay, there's there's light. <laughs> Here is the light. But again, like uh, we all talk about her um, uh, racial background for, from a representation perspective, but I think it's also really important to highlight that not only as a female, but also as a different different format of family that she brings into the stage is really important to me. Now, let's move on to our favorite part of this and every episode, our signature cocktail. 
what do we have today? For me, when I go back and remember my first job in 2001, clubs used to be divided into house and hip-hop rooms, and I was drinking vodka Red Bulls. Oh, boy. And I don't know what kind of vodka it was. That's how, like, that's, like, the, you know, first job out of college drink. But also in 2001, 2002, that's, we were all drinking vodka Red Bull. There were just stories about, like, people getting sick in Europe and parents were like, don't drink it that way. One is an upper, the other one's a downer, kind of like, you can't have them in both together, kind of like conversations. I remember that, but I can't even think about that now. When I think about Red Bull, like I just like quiver. It's not good. So that's not a very Gatsby cocktail. Mm. But I do want to go back to those Champagne Fridays, which is how this entire show kind of started, you know, that has its like little tips of its roots down there. So why don't you come up and tell me a champagne way to celebrate the first job back in early 2000s? So what we were thinking of when we were putting this cocktail together, we wanted, of course, a champagne cocktail, as you know. Mm -hmm. And we were trying to figure out how to create that bridge between what that experience was, uh, youthful naivete, freshness, first jobs, what you were drinking back then. Infinite possibilities. Infinite, po all these huge possibilities of youth and being young, right? And what we wanted to do is see what a modern day interpretation of that concept would be. Maintaining the champ uh, champagne cocktail, but calling it Juventus, which is Latin for youth. Ooh, I like that. That's exciting. So how you prepare it is one part palm juice, pomegranate juice, uh, two parts bubbly, and a slice of lime. And it's pomegranate because that was the year that uh, the pomegranate juice became really popular. Palm Wonderful was a uh -huh. very popular drink at the time. And we wanted to bring that part of the history and update it. I love that. Thank you for hanging with us. For a list of resources mentioned in this week's episode, hop onto our site, GatsbyFridays.com. You can find the recipe for Shine On on our website, Gatsby Fridays. For show notes, or if you want to leave a comment, get at us on our site. Don't forget to rate us and give us five stars and write a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps to get us in front of more ears and build our audience. Or if you're a Spotify person, make sure you follow Gatsby Fridays. Follow us on Instagram for exclusive content like the making of this week's drinks on our Insta stories throughout the week. Till next week, stay with us. This is Gatsby Fridays.